I'm sure you've noticed that our society is crumbling in a number of ways. And this morning's message, uh, just so you know, is more of a treatise on ministry in a society gone so bad it makes your head spin. Usually we take time to look at the scripture with a microscope, get down to the details. We won't be doing that much this morning, maybe a tad here and there. But I want you to think of this as a theological drive-by. We're going to take a bird's eye view of Romans 1 through 3, and we'll cover very little in detail, but a great deal in biblical evangelistic thinking. Looking at what you and I should be resting in and thinking upon in an effort to be faithful to Christ in this decadent culture. This will be part one, by the way. I'll just tell you now. It's very likely that much confusion will be cleared up for you regarding the sovereignty of God who saves by grace and the culpability of man who rejects that grace. I think this will be helpful to that end. Uh, What I mean by that in terms of clearing up confusion, I, I mean that you will certainly see both in God's word. And as you see both in God's word, that's the first step toward increasing clarity, comprehension, wiping away of confusion with regard to the two realities. My points will be long, and I want you to get them down. If you're a person who takes notes, and I hope you are, I want you to take the points down. So I'm going to say them slowly. I'm going to repeat them. I think you you need the privilege to go back to these during the week to increasingly prepare yourself for ministering to those that you love with the truth of God's word. I want you to be better prepared for an effective evangelistic outreach in your own heart and life, as well as for our own church. I just want to warn you, you may be very surprised at what you're going to learn this morning. Point number one, I want you to see the separating power of the gospel. The separating power of the gospel is clearly seen in Romans 1, 1 through 7. Let me read aloud and then we'll walk back through it just a bit. Make some commentary as we go. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to first just point out in verse 7 this little phrase, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is Paul's obvious reference to the special love for the elect that results in their sainthood. Now, if you have a Catholic background and you find yourself occasionally thinking that the saints are those who are not the Christian, then that is the tradition of the Catholic Church, and it's a false teaching. You are a saint if you are in Christ. The term simply means set apart. It's from the Greek term hagias. Saints are those who are in Christ. It's a common term. I remember thinking as a young man growing up in a quasi-Presbyterian church, meaning not 
a real Presbyterian church, but one that really wasn't committed to the gospel, but was committed to some of the traditions of Reformed faith, I remember thinking that the idea of a saint was someone other than me, someone other than those in our church, but people who were of such great spirituality that you couldn't touch them, and therefore you wait till they die to make a statue of them. And maybe you, you had some thinking like that as well. Paul here speaking to the elect. Those who are not just the elect, but in their election, they are set apart. That's the idea. This is what the gospel does. I don't have to tell you that in our decadent society, one of the greatest problems is not the things that we're seeing unfolded now. One of the greatest problems is the wishy-washiness of the church. The people in churches are not being taught that to be in Christ means that you are set apart. There is this idea that if you want to be set apart, you do that yourself. And so maybe you're saved, but you don't really see Christ as Lord. This A, year, a few years ago, it was called the, the Lordship Salvation Debate, which really there's no debate. When God saves someone, he sets him apart unto obedience. I did not say Wesleyan perfectionism. But he sets him apart unto obedience. And as we looked at in Romans 5 and 6, and particularly Romans 6, the saint is no longer enslaved to sin. Yet in Romans 7, we see that he is sold into bondage to sin. What is that? Paul goes on to say, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I not do what I want to do? Thanks be to God, right? Who will set me free from the body of this death? The point is that though not enslaved to sin, one can momentarily and likely will sell himself back into the bondage of sin. What's the solution? Paul asks the question, and he doesn't just leave it with the question. He gives the answer. Many people leave it with the question. The question is, who will set me free from the body of this death? Meaning, because the body means that I will still deal with the flesh. As long as the body is alive, I'm going to struggle with the flesh. But the great reality is that I do struggle with the flesh if I'm a saint, if I'm set apart. And so, that one who is set apart experiences victory. Victory in what? As I said, Paul gives the solution. He gives the answer, verses 24 to 25. He, again, he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, this is the answer. On the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. That's the answer. While you are committed to the law of God, while you express a desire and a hunger for the law of God, you will be sanctified. Yet on the other hand, Romans 7, 25, I with the flesh, not the mind, the flesh, am serving the law of sin. So that's the crossroads. That's the fork in the road, if you will where I determined to either set my mind on the law of God or I determined to set my flesh on the law of sin. That's the point at which you are either sanctified or not. When you're not being sanctified and you're setting your flesh on the law of sin, you're going to place yourself into bondage to things to which you are no longer imprisoned. But like we talked about a few weeks ago, you head back to that prison because it's comfortable. It's what you know rather than being in the outside world with freedom to honor Christ, to overcome sin. 
But the gospel separates. The gospel of Jesus Christ truly separates the believer from the unbeliever. But in many, many churches today, in much of Christendom today, you'll be told that there's really no difference. This idea of what some are today calling gospel growth or grace growth sounds good, sounds noble. And they will tell you that you simply meditate on the gospel. You don't really do anything until you feel like it. You don't obey until you got that love and feeling. Tulian Chavigian, Billy Graham's grandson, a well-known reformed pastor, unlike his grandfather, came to the place where this was the heartbeat of his ministry, teaching what we would call antinomianism, an avoidance of the law, an abandonment of the law. We don't, we don't obey. We, we meditate on the gospel. Now, we would say meditating on the gospel is the key. Yes, we love the gospel. We want to be motivated by the gospel. But a lack of willingness to obey God's word until I feel like it leads to problems. Tullian Tavidian, about three weeks ago, confessed that as a result of what he called his wife's affair, he himself became lonely and had an affair himself. That's not even a confession of sin. The fact is he committed adultery. You see how a tweaked thinking, a wrong thinking about what it is to be separated by the gospel will certainly lead to an abandonment of the gospel? I'll give you many, many more examples in our era and ages past of men who declared themselves to be ministers of the gospel and yet were living a double life. But antinomianism covers it over. If I don't have to be committed to the law, if I don't have to be committed to obedience, then I can just tell people, you know, I'm a wretched sinner. We're all wretched sinners. We'll just kind of see how it turns out. There's absolutely no dividing line between the believer and the unbeliever. We all sin. We all disobey. We all fail. That's a true statement. Those are all true statements. But at the point where sin becomes unbridled, and there's no check on it, and there's no willingness to be examined and scrutinized by others, then certainly that type of sanctification, if you can even call it that, will without doubt result in some moral failure. You and I must be devoted to a humble commitment to recognizing that But by the grace of God go we, but because of the grace of God we do go. And we do love faithfulness. We do love the Word of God. We want to be scathed by it. We want to be refined by it. We want to be changed by it. We want to be obedient. We want nothing to take place that might draw attention or glory or credit to ourselves. We want to be able to say that when we obey, it's the result of God's grace. Why? Because that's the truth. That's the truth. The separating power of the gospel I've already read it to you, but in verses 1 through 7, you really see Paul beginning this introduction in his letter to the Christians in Rome by expressing the fact that he, in verse 1, has been set apart for the gospel of God. He declares that he's, a, he's been called to be an apostle, but he also adds this, he is set apart. He's separated, hagias, holified unto the gospel. Friends, that's not because he's an apostle. That's because God saved him. Every Christian is set apart for the gospel. This is not for special Christians. 
It's for the average, mundane, faithful Christian. And then he goes on to give some explanation as to what the gospel is through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. The power of the death of Jesus Christ to overcome sin and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to give newness of life. That we would long to see other people know Jesus Christ because of his death and his resurrection, which were given specifically for us, those who belong to Jesus Christ. So there is a separating power in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is certain. It's not a guess. It's not a throwing of the dice. God sprinkles the world with the gospel and says, let's see how it turns out. We call this the efficaciousness of the atonement. He propitiated for sins. In other words, he satisfied God in his death for the elect. It is without question. And what is the certain result? It's a separation. A love for holiness. A love for that which God loves. Oh, and by the way, a hatred for that which God hates. Romans 12, 9. We are set apart by the gospel, and it is a certain setting apart. Number two. Number two in our text. The certain gratitude of one saved by the gospel. The certain gratitude, thankfulness, of the one saved by the gospel. And as a quick footnote, you will see the contrast of the ingratitude or the thanklessness toward God of those who are not saved by the gospel but declare some sort of false Christianity. Now they cling to some false gospel and yet they are not thankful to God and you will see the great devastation of that disposition in our text this morning. So the certain gratitude of one saved by the gospel begins in verse 8. First, I thank my God. How about that? Paul the Apostle... You know, some consider to be the greatest Christian ever, meaning the most humble, you know, faithful, effective in ministry. First, get it? First, of priority, of number one importance, I thank my God. Just stop there and let that settle in. This is Paul's main point. I'm thankful. He doesn't say anything like here or anywhere else. I'm really glad God gave me a chance and I, you know, took that chance and he believed in me and, you know, he made me feel good about myself. And <laughs> I thank my God through Jesus Christ for what? For all of you. And who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to those whose faith is known throughout the land as a result of their devotion to being separated by the gospel and separated for the gospel. Listen. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's quite a statement. Your faith. Those of you who are in Christ, in Rome, your faith has, has been heard throughout the world because you're set apart. People know you to be set apart. Verse 9, 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So thankful to God for these faithful believers and desirous to spend time with them. Why? He explains why. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He's not talking here about 1 Corinthians 12 spiritual gifts. He's simply talking about the gift of interacting and encouraging, strengthening each other. Here's why I say that. He explains it in verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Isn't that something? Paul, pastor, shepherd, a faithful apostle, saying that we might be mutually, you know, reciprocally encouraged. Not just me coming to you to encourage you, but that you would receive the blessing or the spiritual gift of encouraging me. Do you love that? It's not this top-down idea that we're the leaders and you're the listeners, you know, just pay attention. No, but there's this mutual enjoyment of the person of Christ and even one another. Verse 12 again, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is another statement of gratitude. Think about it. The things that you're ashamed of. You thankful for those? Well, you're thankful for the things which don't bring you shame. You enjoy the gospel. So you're not ashamed of it. And yet there's certainly the temptation to become ashamed of the gospel. And this is one of the things I think it's important to point out that in our growingly decadent society, you will be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. You will be tempted to deny Christ. You may have already experienced that at the workplace. As this growing belief and even seeming conviction that a man is not necessarily a man, and a woman is not necessarily a woman. You know, it's, you know, it's gray, gender confusion, gender selection, gender identity, along with a number of other things that have been in our society for a long time. You're going to be challenged to determine where you will establish and rest in terms of your convictions. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and he explains why. Don't you love this? I love this about Paul. He nearly always explains what he means, or at least when he gives a command, he gives the theology behind the command. We might call that the basis underneath the commands, the foundation of the commands. But in this case, he makes a declaration, and then he explains why he can make that declaration. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which he has just explained in verses 1 through 8. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of salvation of God to everyone who believes. We've looked at the sovereignty of God, and now we see the very clear statement that everyone who believes in the gospel experiences the power of God unto salvation. He is saved. If he believes in the gospel, he is saved. That's what it takes to be a Christian. Believing in the gospel. 
He also says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, verse 17, back to the gospel. For in the gospel, right? This is the key issue, the theme throughout the book of Romans. For in it, the righteousness of God. You ought to underline that if you haven't. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or if you're reading NAS, from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I think many of you know that Martin Luther, as a monk, when studying to become a Catholic priest, abandoned it all at this point. Now, it wasn't his attempt to create a reformation. It wasn't his desire at that point to create a reformation. But this is the moment at which he abandoned salvation by works. When he recognized that salvation comes by grace. Faith is the vehicle. When a man is saved, it is by faith and faith alone. The moment he believes, and as Martin Luther was studying this passage, that was the moment in which he believed. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've struggled with all this theology and wondered what in the world is the point of it anyway. This is it. This is what ultimately is the foundation of, what, of all that matters. We'll refer to this later as justification by faith, but the reality is that when one person believes when he believes, in the moment that he believes, God has saved him. God has awakened him. God has granted him new life that he didn't have before and therefore couldn't choose Christ. Again, verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith. What does this mean? It means that one person who has that faith shares it with another. Evangelism. And you've experienced the joy of faith in Christ. You've experienced the joy of an abandonment of all things evil. You're now enslaved to righteousness and you love that. And you want other people to experience that. You want them to experience eternal life. But maybe more pressing because you live on the earth right now in a physical body. You long for that person to have the joy of imputed righteousness. A love for what is good and a hatred for what is Evil, And you know that those whom you love who are without Christ need that. And you also know that they're destined for an eternity of torment because they're resting in their works. They're convinced that one day God will smile upon them because they did enough good things to outweigh the bad. And yet, Paul says, righteousness is by faith. It doesn't add anything to it. By faith and faith alone. And so again, you see the gratitude, not only in Paul, but as you look at the believers in Rome, as you look at the believers sitting next to you, you will see when a person acknowledges the sovereignty of God and the love of God and the willingness of God to save the lost, it will result in a certain gratitude. There will be a ready and willing thankfulness. And sometimes it needs to be prompted by solid preaching. Other times it needs to be prompted by a faithful friend to take you back to the text of Scripture. Other times in your time of prayer, or maybe your Bible reading, you acknowledge, even as I did this morning, that pride overtakes. Your self-will leads you to have a, an inflated view of self. I do that. Every Christian is prone to that. So what happens? We start cultivating the self-will and the seeming self-dependence. And so we stop thinking about that for which we should be thankful. And we even 
might even start taking credit for it. And someone says, well, how'd you become a Christian? Well, you know, I read the Bible and I've, you know, I've been to church for a long time and I finally just decided, you know, this, is, this makes good sense and so I chose Jesus. Man, that is not at all, thank you. That is nothing but sheer and pure pride. How about this? How about saying I was dead in my trespasses and sins and Jesus made me alive? It's true. If you're in Christ, that's what happened. I think a lot of people are confused by this because they're not saved. They made some sort of decision. And that decision resulted in their thinking that they deserved credit for what they did. They never want to let go of that. The more you read the Bible, the more that's stripped. In the case of some people, they get saved reading the Bible and seeing that it's actually God who has done the work and does the work. In other cases, uh, just the immaturity of, of a man-centered, self-focused, prideful theology is overcome by the truth. <laughs> and what's the result? Falling flat on your back in gratitude. Thank you, God, that you did what I now realize I didn't do and couldn't have done. Oh, thank you. Not for assisting me, but for resurrecting me. Number three. Number three this morning, I want you to see the abandonment of wrath for inexcusable ingratitude and dishonor. I want you to see the abandonment of wrath for inexcusable ingratitude and dishonor. Beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God. Don't skim over that term in the Scripture. Don't ever think that that's some sort of obscure idea that doesn't carry great weight. The wrath of God is the ultimate fulfillment of His judgment upon mankind for rejecting His grace. And what is it? It's hell. It's a real hell. It's a conscious, eternal torment of forever suffering beyond anything you have ever experienced or ever even imagined. And it is deserved. I deserve it. You deserve it. This is difficult for the man-centered theologian to overcome. He might even be willing to give lip service to it, but when the depth of the reality of total depravity is presented to him, he twists it out of his mind. He wants nothing to do with the concept that he literally and genuinely, wholly and completely, through and through, in the fabric of his inborn being, deserved eternal torment and was dead and utterly unable. He somehow convinces himself, usually because of the pseudo-theologians he subjects himself to, that he had something to do with making a dead man alive. It's silly at best and destructive at worst. The abandonment of wrath for inexcusable ingratitude and dishonor. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
quite a picture, isn't it? They hear truth, they suppress it. I don't like that. I don't like it, I don't like it. You start thinking about other things. La, 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 la. Whatever it takes. I don't like this. I've heard it before. I don't like it. They suppress the truth. And what is the result? If I could cut to the chase, it is wrath. Especially when there is a persistent commitment to suppressing truth that is utterly clear. Difficult to comprehend, but utterly clear. It's there. But it doesn't fit my deductive reasoning system. It's illogical, they might say. The abandonment of wrath is for those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, plain and simple. There's no need to, to break this down any more simply, but there is great devastation in trying to color it to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. How's that for clear? For what can be known about them is plain to them. The NAS says it's evident in them. This is why we say there are no atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist. My friend Phil Johnson preached a message called Why I Don't Believe in Atheists. I saw someone wearing a t-shirt the other day that said, Awe Atheist. You know, the alpha primitive meaning not. I don't believe that atheists exist. Well, they don't. You say, I know some atheists. No, you don't. You know someone who wants you to think they're an atheist. They want God to go away. They know he can't and won't go away. They know that he exists. But they want you to think that he can and does and has. And so they try to persuade you to that. Maybe they can persuade you to believe what you're trying to persuade them to believe. As I quoted in the prayer earlier, Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But he knows it's not true. He knows there is a God. Why? Because Paul says it's plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. He goes now into another level of what we call general revelation. General revelation meaning that God has made his existence known in the heart of man written on man's heart that God exists. But then he goes into the external awareness that man cannot deny in honesty for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. It is not an oversimplification to say that because there are things that are made, there is therefore a maker. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Whatever light existed in their hearts from having an awareness of the reality of the existence of God in their hearts, written on their hearts, and an awareness of God written in creation, their hearts have become intentionally darkened to it. This is their doing. Darkened their own hearts. Became futile in their thinking. And how did it start? What did it start with? Look at the passage. What did it start with? What was the stem? What was the foundation of being becoming a darkened heart? ingratitude. They did not give 
thanks to God. They knew of him. They rejected the truth about him. They continued to reject that truth. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They were already foolish hearts, and now they're darkened hearts. And listen to this. And this is really obvious when this happens. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know that man. He wants everyone to think that he's full of wisdom, and yet when he talks, not much comes out. Not much depth, not much substance, certainly not much scripture. Kind of rambles, doesn't really study the word. You know, he dabbles in it, throws some things around, trifles with it. He certainly is not the man in Isaiah 66 too that trembles before the word of God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You say, who in the world would do that? Well, we first think of uh, Egypt, probably, and the worship of cats, maybe India, and the worship of cows. But I suggest that goes on in our country in different forms. You know, we know, maybe you know somebody who worships their cat or their parakeet or whatever. And, you know, you might say, yeah, but I love God. Okay, good, that's great. Really, that's truly great. And you want to keep all that in perspective. But there are those who don't love God. And they might even say something like, you know, you know Fuzzy, he's part of the family. Well, I get it when people say, you know, we've been with us for such a long time. You know, we had a cat. In fact, his name was Fuzzy for 17 years. And when Fuzzy died, I cried. I admit it. I was 18 years old and, you know, wept like a baby. But Fuzzy was, let me just tell you, he was not part of the family. He was a joy to our family. But there can come the willingness to exalt four-footed creatures, and this is the point, as over against the one true God who deserves glory. Now, if you got a cat, don't go home and, you know, tell him he's got to go. It's up to you, you know, if you want your house filled with cat fur, that's fine with you, that's your business. But um, this is not unusual for God to be replaced with some idol. And how much easier is it to replace God with an idol that purrs? or expresses some form of affection. Is dog really man's best friend? Of course not. He's a four-footed creature, and he was created by the Creator for the joy of the dog owner. But not to be worshipped. This abandonment of wrath is inexcusable. It is a uncanny reality those who claim to be wise and yet are fools would exchange their command and obligation to give glory to God to display the glory of that which is mortal verse 24 therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, as you can tell, this is the closing of a particular argument, and Paul picks right back up. 
but amen, so be it, is a declaration that I've said something here that you really need to make note of. You really need to let this be sewn into the, the basement of your theology. Don't lose sight of this. I've given you an exclamation point here, Paul is saying, so that you will understand this is what happened and this is why it happened to those who are given over to a debased mind. Do not lose sight of this in your efforts to be a faithful Christian in a worldly and decadent society. Think from this basis about those whom you know have engaged things who, that are greatly displeasing to the Lord. Again, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Whose fault is it? It's man's fault. Man is culpable. In the lusts of his heart, his dismissal of the greatness of God, replacing the greatness of God with the greatness of a four-footed animal, is such that God is so tenaciously disdainful, hateful, righteously displeased with this pattern in the heart of man that he says, fine. And in a sense, he grabs man by the collar and he kicks him to a greater distance and a greater inability. This is another level, if you will, of mental hostility toward the Lord and a willingness to pretend that he doesn't exist. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to what? To impurity. The dishonoring of their bodies. And as you know, this is what we are seeing at a rampant level. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's why. They worshiped something other than God. They made an idol out of that which God created. Next. I want you to see the self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct. This is point number four. The self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct. This is a quick point. Verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For what reason? They chose to replace God with four-footed animals. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, meaning he removed the bridle. He removes the restraint on the person who says, I'm more greatly interested in worshiping something that's not God than worshiping the one who is God. He goes on to say in verse 26, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's about as sanctified an expression as you could possibly come up with to describe what goes on in the sexual deviancy of Paul's age and now ours. Verse 27, he says basically the same thing about men. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let me talk about the due penalty for their error first, and then we'll go back and uncover what this is that uh, they have embraced the unnatural as over against the natural. The due penalty of their error is the self-inflicted difficulty that a person brings upon himself when he engages in that which is unnatural and becomes desensitized to it, and pretty soon he no longer thinks that it is unacceptable. 
That's the simple reality. Now listen, please hear me when I tell you this. As you as a Christian think about how to minister to those in a community, in a society, which has embraced things that you would look at and say, that is deplorable. They no longer believe it is. So don't simply look at people and judge people and think of people as doing that which you don't understand. You now understand it. They've been turned over. The restraint that's in your heart, and not just your heart, but the heart of the unbeliever, the natural restraint in the heart of the unbeliever looks at such conduct and says, that's not natural. And then something happens. And then another thing happens. And then another thing. And then a pattern. And he looks at it in a magazine or on the internet. And he engages in it willfully. And pretty soon he's thinking, there's some good in this. There's some enjoyment in this. This isn't so bad. And a chip at a time, like the frog in a pot of water that's room temperature, turned up one degree every five minutes. A little bit at a time, he becomes desensitized to that which will ultimately kill him. And now, he literally thinks it's acceptable. And there was a day in our society where it was called alternative lifestyle, and that is now offensive. Not alternative lifestyle. It's equally normal. Quote Al Mohler, to call something normal is not to make it normal. So you've seen the progression. You've seen the reality. You don't always know the details. In fact, probably most of the time, you don't know the details that led up to that in someone's life. But friends, beloved, you and I must tenaciously think biblically. We must be willing to go back to this text and recognize the domino effect in a person's life who is initially exposed to that which is unnatural and beyond a shadow of a doubt, the moment that first happened, he himself said, that's not right. It's not right. And over time, he and others persuaded him to believe through desensitization that it is right. It's not only okay, it's right. Can't we just let everybody be happy? It's kind of the, the mantra these days. And so you see a self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct. It's a personal, self-inflicted disposition. And although sometime back the word gay was chosen, which meant at that time happy, they are not. So there is a passionate effort to persuade others that they are happy. The result is spending time with others who are in that context are persuaded to believe that they are happy, so I need to be happy too. And so the pretense goes on and on and on, and it builds, and eventually there is this idea that there is happiness when there actually is not. Now, Number five, the penalty on an unrighteous culture. The penalty on an unrighteous culture, beginning in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. You see that? It's back to this ingratitude, this lack of thankfulness. 
Paul goes back to this. He, he wants us not to forget this issue. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What's a debased mind? It's an unbridled, wicked mind. Again, there's no restraint. No restrictions on the degree to which the mind will engage in envisioning sinful activity. It doesn't mean that they'll act on every bit of it, but the mind, uh, for the mind, the sky's the limit. And in many cases, as you know, those in this condition will act on it, and many times they do. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, that's not a wrong phrase. In thinking about and even addressing this conduct, we can confidently and honestly say that ought not to be done. It's not a wrong thing to say. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now remember, the key term, the key issue throughout the book of Romans is this issue of righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. For the Christian, what is it? It's imputed. It's granted. It's a declaration. It's a legal declaration. God determines. God declares. God states. Those who have received Christ have been granted that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that he could not earn, could not choose, could not deserve. So this is the beginning of a number of elements that Paul speaks of here when he says, they were then filled, having been turned over to this debased mind, they were then filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, you know, longing for what other people have, and then malicious intent in their thinking, wanting ill will for others on a pervasive level, an uninterrupted desire for the harm of others. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. That means prideful, you know, and it's obvious in their conduct. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So again, you see the penalty on an unrighteous culture and its condemnation, its eternal torment, its spiritual death, its eternal death, death given to those, not only those who are committed to these things, but also to those who give hearty approval to those who are committed to these things. And so there's a camaraderie of evil. There's a willingness to kill the conscience. You kill your conscience, I'll kill mine. Misery loves company. Those who are committed to such evil conduct and evil attitudes salve one another's consciences. The result, according to the edict of God, is they will experience eternal torment. Number six. Number six. The judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. The judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. This is what I was referring to earlier when I said you might be surprised about where this text will take us this morning. You read the point again, and then we'll look at the text. 
the judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Who's he talking to here? Stay with me. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What things is he talking about here? Now, you might think he's talking about homosexuality. He's not. He's not. He's talking about, in verse 29, those who are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Pay close attention to these. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see that in a new light? You and I could easily look at this statement in chapter 2 and think, oh man, those people better get it together. He's talking to you and me. If we have the hypocritical spirit that we somehow lifted ourselves out of a pseudo-depravity. You know in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul speaks of homosexuality and heterosexual sin and thievery and other sins, you know he says, such were some of you. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, he says, you lived in these things, you walked in these things. In essence, they were who you were. Now let me give you a really serious and hopefully helpful theological principle regarding the condition into which man is born. You and I are no better than anyone who has ever lived regardless of the sin they've committed. We are not better we have not achieved a level of betterness, a greater goodness, a greater level of spirituality. If we know and embody the righteousness of Christ, that was a gift of grace. It came to you by faith. You did not earn it. If you did, God would not get the glory that he and he alone deserves for granting it to you. We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Malice, boastfulness, gossip, slander. That's what he's talking about. The judgment of God. Isn't it interesting? Paul completely shifted gears on us here. And it's so easy to miss. This message this morning, this text this morning is not for you to go out of here and beat someone with their sexual deviancy. It's for you to examine your heart and me as well. It's a serious punch in the throat to our self-righteousness of which we are all guilty from time to time. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? Now remember, he's shifted gears here. He's no longer talking about homosexuality. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God 
That is what we call a rhetorical question. The answer is no, you won't. I think the greater deceptive sin in the church is obviously not homosexuality. It's self-righteousness. It's the hypocritical spirit of those who have no love for the homosexual. It's the self-righteous mindset that's absolutely unwilling to consider the possibility that God might, in fact, be calling attention to his own faithlessness, the faithlessness of the self-righteous. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Can I ask you and me at the same time, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness? I think you do. I think I do. I think we become ungrateful. We forget what total depravity really is. We take credit for our relationship with Christ. Whether or not we would state it that clearly, it's easy for the heart to swell with pride that says, I wish people would just be more like me. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Anybody remember that song uh, from the 80s? I know some of you don't. You weren't born yet. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. Knowing that you love us makes us want to love you too. That part of the song is good. I wouldn't recommend the rest of it. The lyrics get a little off, but that's a good statement. And the truth is, it's not what Paul's teaching right here, but the reality is that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But here Paul is speaking to the self-righteous judge who thinks that he somehow is better that he somehow achieved a greater level of spirituality. And he asks, are you presumptuous? Have you forgotten? Do you refuse to stop and think about reality? Have you forgotten that by which you were saved, if you are? Have you embraced the legalism that you did enough for God to smile on you? Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, I want you to see the judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. And I want you to examine your heart, and I hope I will examine my heart. I commit to do that. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Right? See, those who rest in the greatness of God's glory, they long for God's honor to be on display. They want to experience the joy of immortality by resting in the reality that they've been set apart. Those people will receive eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He's speaking to the self-righteous Hypocrite who looks down on other sinners. In particular, he looks down on those who have been turned over to a debased mind. God's wrath is not only stored up for that person. The way Paul says it is, you're storing up that wrath yourself with your heart attitude. Every time 
you have a self-righteous thought that elevates you and sinfully criticizes the unbeliever, you're storing up God's eternal torment on your head. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. I want to give you four instructions by way of application. As you know, there's much more to the text we need to look at. But if you and I are to be effectively ministerial, if we are to live spirit-filled lives of effective evangelistic ministry in a lost and dying world that is increasingly wicked, I suggest in light of this text, number one, know the gospel, believe in it, and thank God for it. Know the gospel. I suggest that the better you know the gospel, the more quickly and the more certainly your man-centered theology will be destroyed. The more you meditate on the truth of the gospel, the more you will become thankful. So again, number one, by way of application, know the gospel, believe in it, and thank God for it. Number two, examine your heart and repent of your pride and hypocrisy. You know, the trouble about a comment like this is that those who are already doing this are excited about it. They're broken. They long for it. And the difficulty is that many times those who are most hard-hearted, most non-repentant, most prideful, and most hypocritical, repel this like the duck does water. So do it anyway. You might say, you know, I, I'm devoted to this. this. This is a good instruction. I, I want to examine my heart. I need to examine my heart. I know there's a need for repentance. I know there's pride in there. I know there's hypocrisy. Do it anyway. And you know what will happen? The Lord will certainly produce faith in someone else through your faith. Maybe one of those people who are so hard-hearted and non-repentant and prideful and arrogant. Maybe that'll happen. We've seen that, haven't we? When the prideful, boastful person who thinks much of himself is brought low as a result of exposure to humble, godly people, examine your heart and repent of your pride and hypocrisy. Number three, prepare. It's very important. Prepare and share the gospel with those you love. That's a broad category of people, is it not? Prepare. You know, don't just say, oh, we'll just you know, we'll share the gospel when we get there, whatever. No, no, prepare. Know Scripture. Memorize Scripture. That's why we ask you to memorize a passage with the whole church every week. Do you do that? That's why we ask you to do that. When we first started doing that, we gave you strategic passages that explain the gospel, call to repentance in light of the gospel. So prepare and share the gospel with those you love. Now, I'm going to give you three categories of people. God. Share the gospel with God. Yeah, that's how we worship. When we worship God, we're declaring to him what he has accomplished. So yeah, share the gospel with God. Second, obviously, the church. Share the gospel with the church. Remind those who are in Christ of that for which we should be thankful. 
That'll help them be thankful as it will you. And then, of course, third, the lost. Share the gospel with the lost. You know, don't believe this idea that you're sharing the gospel with someone because you're just being nice to them. That might be a precursor. That might be pre-evangelism. But sharing the gospel is using words. You have to use words. So do that. Number four. Number four. Expect the church to be purified and strengthened. You and I should be rejoicing. We should be excited about how the Lord will use us when the watered-down church will disappear. And those who are devoted to some man-centered theology that is not the gospel, those who are in their immaturity begin to recognize that it is God from whom salvation comes and they grow and they're strengthened. And the Lord begins to use them to produce growth and strength in others. The church will be strengthened. It'll be purified. There will be a separation, right? This is what we want. We've been waiting for this. So I don't know if I was waiting for this, for what seems to be coming down, for what certainly is coming down. I wouldn't say I've been waiting for that. And I wouldn't say that either. But we've certainly been waiting for the church to be purified. And if you're in Christ, you want that. You want people to see that you are set apart. You want people to know that you are different because you actually are. For the one for whom this doesn't matter, he's not set apart. So what do we do with that person? We show patience to him. We show grace and we show love and we show kindness. And we trust the Lord that he will begin a work in that person that he began in you. Because if God begins it, he will complete it. Father, what great joy to bring your word to a faithful people who love you, love your glory, and deeply desire to honor you with their lives. And so, Lord, as we go to a time of singing, may we not think of it as a as an ending of the preaching and a time of worship. May we think of all of this as worship. May we think of all of our lives as worship, every day, every minute, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ as we worship. Even as Brad mentioned earlier, that we would teach one another, that we would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And Father, I pray for the, I, I plead with you for the individual passion of the persons, the members in our church, to begin to nurture and cultivate a love for the lost. That we would never, ever look upon anyone with a self-righteous disdain. That somehow revels in this idea that we're better and they just need to, to change their gross conduct. I ask that we as a church would cultivate that in, in every single one of our members and that every single one of our members would cultivate that in each other. And that the result would be, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would experience the triumph of evangelism. That we would take joy in being a, an aroma of Christ unto God among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. 
We ask these things for your great glory. Amen.